Welcome from Alpha to Omega. I'd like to make the outrageous claim that has a little bit of truth that actually all of this things that's happening now with the computer taking over the world, the digitalization of our society, you could say in a way is the result of a philosophical question that was raised by uh, David Hilbert. It's not a complete lie to say that Turing invented the computer in order to shed light on a philosophical question about the foundations of mathematics that was asked by Hilbert. So it's as if the whole economy today is being run to keep the bank solvent, not to produce mortgage and services, not to raise living standards, but all for the uh, aim of uh, increasing bank profits. Everyone has to line up and sing hosannas to their leaders. That's the job of intellectuals. Round up the chorus so they all sing praises to your leaders while they march in the parade and tell you how magnificent we are. I and mean, that's the historic task of intellectuals. I mean, it's a historic task. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of my new podcast, From Alpha to Omega. On this podcast, I hope to put forward topics and subjects of interest to me, and, I hope, of interest to you, the listeners. I have been inspired to start this podcast by the events happening around the world today, and also by the work of such people as KMO over in the Sea Realm, Doug Lane from the Diet Soul podcast, and the guys that are the extra environmentalists. I hope to give a space where experts can talk in depth on complex issues, an opportunity that is sadly lacking in our dumbed down mainstream media. This podcast will strive to be a forum free from those perils described by Noam Chomsky in his propaganda model of mainstream media. A forum free of government and corporate interference and the terrors of concision, the practice of limiting the debate and discussion of important topics by limiting the amount of broadcast time allotted. It hopes to be an arena where the sacred cows of our times can be discussed and challenged, a place free from the corrupting influence of advertising revenues. On the podcast website, you can sign up to receive an email notification whenever I upload a new episode. There, you can also join the From Alpha to Omega group on Facebook to discuss the latest episodes, to proffer your ideas, or maybe to dole out some old-fashioned abuse. For those of you who have some spare cash and would like to put some dough my way to help fund the expense of running the podcast, you can donate using the PayPal links so expertly and prominently featured. My guest today on the inaugural episode of From Alpha to Omega is the esteemed Professor Charles A.S. Hall, distinguished professor at State University of New York in the College of Environmental Science and Forestry. He is the co-author of the excellent new book, which I have just finished, Energy and the Wealth of Nations, Understanding the Biophysical Economy. Professor Hall, trained under the famous ecologist Howard T. Odom, has published over 250 scholarly articles and is best known for his development of the concept of EROI, or Energy Returned on Energy Invested. So let's begin. Professor, could you talk to me about the concept of surplus energy? In biology, there is a kind of unwritten uh, law of natural selection, of evolution, 
that says that an organism cannot pass on its genes to its future to undertake what is normally called fitness uh, without having an energy surplus, enough energy to allow the organism to make it through the contingencies of life and to generate a surplus that would result in the ability to uh, conceive, uh, carry to term, and support the young, uh, depending on the species, uh, the energy requirements necessary to do all these things. We might want to call it a kind of iron law of biology, but I don't think anybody has done that, and probably we should do it. Um, but certainly, fitness itself, from a biological terms, is usually a bit circular in its definition. That which is uh, survives is that which is fit. Well, uh, what's fit? What's fit is that which survives. It's a little yeah. more sophisticated than that, but there's still a problem of a tautology there. And if we think about this biological issue from an energy perspective, there's no circularity. There's no tautology. That the organism that is fit is the one that generates the most surplus energy that allows it to get its way through contingencies and to generate many offspring, many surviving offspring, with uh, good genes for the future. What kind of role does this energy surplus play in empire? Humans, to the best of our knowledge, have been something like human for about a million years. And most of the time we traveled in small bands, some guessed at around 30 people, but I'm sure it was quite variable. Organisms that live very much probably like our ancestors for an indefinite period of time, whether they were called humans or not, and which it was the same thing we talked just talked about in general biology, in which in order for certain humans or pre-humans to survive, there was a necessity of, of having an energy surplus that would lead to the ability to make it through the tough times in life, to have a surplus, to uh, put down enough fat for uh, carrying young and for lactation, and ultimately to provide the young with the contingencies or with the resources needed to make it through until they could continue the process. So this is the process of natural selection that we've seen in other organisms. It seems to apply equally to humans. Empire did not enter the stage for, I don't know, 99% of human uh, existence. It was only when we uh, began to have the ability to make large amounts of surplus energy that this was possible. Now, there were human technologies that were important in this process. And most human technologies are actually energy technologies when you think about it. So, for example, for hunters and gatherers, the kind of folks that we were uh, for most of our existence, the uh, technologies, the energy technologies, were especially spear points and knife blades. They're devices for concentrating energy that allowed humans to do more work. And remember, it's always about doing more work. Work is turning the raw resources, raw materials of the earth, into things that humans find useful 
and ultimately contribute to their survival. And it might be a spear point leading to the ability to kill a certain animal, to get their skin for a cold night, uh, to have a pork chop or whatever for supper, and to contribute to the survival of the young. So the first, probably the first great energy innovation was that of spear points and knife blades, energy or force concentrating devices. And the second really big one was agriculture, the concept that was invented probably a number of places in the world, more or less simultaneously, about 10,000 years ago, in which humans, for the first time, made an energy investment. They used their own muscles and they used resources that they already had, i.e. seeds, and instead of consuming everything, they planted them in the expectation of a crop the next year. They probably came to the idea for doing this by watching how foods that they brought into their camps would sprout near their kitchen middens, and uh, just, you know, people probably have the same intelligence then as now, and they were would observe how things happen. And this agriculture allowed a tremendous amount of surplus energy because it increased the ability of the earth to support humans from about one person per square kilometer, maybe even per five or ten square kilometers, which is what you can do on an unmanaged ecosystem just from hunting and gathering under good circumstances to uh, a situation where you could have tens to hundreds of people per square kilometer. And this agriculture surplus led to all kinds of things. It led to uh, political hierarchies. It led to the need to store grains in, uh, in that meant guards and and scribes and mathematicians and all kinds of things needed to manage all of this. And it led to the ability to fund an army to go and steal surpluses from somebody else. And so much of human history is about one group of humans uh, going forth with trumpets and battle flags to steal uh, the possessions the surplus energy, uh, the woman, the whatever, the ultimate manifestation of that is, of course, his empire. The Edinburgh Military Tattoo. Can you talk about the role of thermodynamics in, in economies in general? Well, I don't even know if that's the way, right way exactly to state the question because the role of thermodynamics in economies is no different than the role of thermodynamics in everything else. Uh, as far as we know, and we know a lot, and we've tried a lot, a lot, a lot to show this not to be true, there ha is nothing we've observed on this earth or in all of the universe that has broken the laws of thermodynamics. As far as we know, they're as close to real laws as possible. So the laws of thermodynamics are this. They're actually quite simple. Uh, the first one is usually stated that energy is neither created nor destroyed, that you always end up with the same amount of energy as you started with. The second 
law says, however, in each transformation of energy, some of that energy is lost as low-grade heat. So when you have a, a motor running or uh, essentially any device, you put your hand on it and it's warm. And that's a consequence of the second law of thermodynamics. It, it's essential and it's found in every single transformation that energy takes. In other words, when you use energy, let's drive a car up a hill, some of that energy you can get back. You can let the car roll down the hill. But some of the energy that's the heat that's on the, from the radiator or on the hood of the car, etc., the friction of the tires, you can't get back. Can you discuss the development of economics from the physiocrats onwards? The um, physiocrats were a group in France, which was the first formal school of technology, and they felt that wealth, all wealth came from the land. And uh, just to make it a really brief little summary, then the classical economists came along, uh, Adam Smith and, and David Ricardo, uh, who I admire a lot, and uh, Karl Marx and some others, and they felt very strongly that uh, wealth came from, from labor. And then along came neoclassical economists who were less interested in that question of where does wealth come from, more in the distribution. But even so, when they asked that question, they tended to focus very much on capital. Now, I would like to say that each of these groups of economists were in their way correct, but each of them were talking about the major energy sources of their time, and hence their major energy sources were turned into the major economic production. So the physiocrats were uh, writing when land was the principal source of, of wealth, and it was land as the interceptor of solar energy. Well, not just agriculture, because it was the uh, through wood, uh, forestry resources. Uh, There's a fantastic book by a guy named John Perlin, um, about the role of wood in history, which is much, much larger than most people have any concept. Uh, also, grazing land, uh, that the motive power was horses, and that came from solar power, from grass. Uh, you can even think of the great Mongol Empire of Genghis Khan that was based on grass. A former student is working out the ancient history of that region and he feels that it was an unusually wet period that allowed tremendous growth of grass that allowed Genghis Khan to, to be so successful in, I guess now you look at human genes um, in that part of the world and you can find most of them have a, have a direct lineage. Yeah, a lineage back to one person. Now we don't know who that person was, but we assume it was Genghis Khan. Other, well, all of these are land-based sources of wealth or power or, as you asked earlier, empire. So then we can look at the classical economists. They focused on labor as a source of wealth. And, of course, that made sense because labor at that time was very much the process by which raw materials in nature were transformed to uh, what people perceived as wealth. And then uh, when we get to the marginal, what's called the marginal revolution in 1870 or so, and the 
derivation of neoclassical economics, which is really quite something different, but it's the dominant economics today. If they focus on anything in wealth production, it's capital. But capital is, if you think about it, is a means of using fossil energy. Each of them then, if you take it from a broader systems-oriented energy-directed view, each of them is focusing correctly on the major sources of energy at that time as the focal point of their the economics, theory. and they were correct in doing so. Now, people didn't really understand energy. Nobody did until hmm, maybe Joule or somebody in uh, 1850s, 1880s, and, and now we've really put it together, and it's so simple. There's nothing complicated about this. You asked me before about the laws of thermodynamics, and we can restate the laws of thermodynamics this way, um, is that the first law of thermodynamics says that the quantity of energy never changes, and the second law says, but the quality changes at each transformation. So in your book you talk sometimes about the, the exchange of energy from different types of elements in the ecosystem and that only 10% of that energy is transferred from, from one element to the next. One trophic level or food level to yeah. another, yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you think of a grass takes a certain amount of energy and then a cow mm -hmm. only gets 10% from that and the human gets 10% mm -hmm. from that, mm -hmm. we see a massive only We're only actually taking a very small amount of the original oh, yeah. energy. Mm -hmm. So what we see ourselves now when we look around with 7 billion humans, mm -hmm. That does not seem kind of <laughs> likely to survive on a purely solar energy budget. Okay, I, I think that's quite true. I think that we are keeping, I don't know exactly, but something like um, probably 6.8 billion of the world's 7 billion people alive on fossil fuels one way or the other. I mean, digging phosphorus out of the ground has been critical. Uh, fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere using very energy-intensive Haber-Bosch process. Th that's another critical issue to supporting, to simply feeding the number of people that there are in the world. Can we drill down further into neoclassical economics, because that's the real dominant school at the moment. In your book you have a number of very important broad criticisms. Well, it's almost embarrassing because if, if you're trained as I am as a natural scientist, as you know, in physics and chemistry and ecology and hydrology and lots of biology and all of these kinds of things, it's really kind of an embarrassment to look at conventional economics and what they teach. I, I, I think it's fr a fraud. I think that the kind of economics that we teach a million young people in my country in the United States every year uh, is fraudulent. And, and I was delighted to see that in the the economist who writes the most used textbook in the United States is is Greg Mankiw, and and I would be like to say that he's a very nice and very open guy. I don't want to criticize him. He's just carrying on in the tradition of Samuelson and putting all of the dark dogmatic theories. Yeah. I don't know the doxology. I think we whatever it is the religious. Uh, terms in, in, into a readable textbook, but his his students were uh, seventy of the students walked out of his class saying, you know, you you're just teaching us tools of oppression, and 
what I liked best was one of the students said, you, you don't have any references in your book. We can't go back and look at the source material for the ideas that are in the book. This is unacceptable to a natural scientist, but the economist, for some reason, can get away with it. Uh, Leontiev, a Nobel Prize winner and economist, uh, said 25 years ago, how long will, will scientists and other disciplines allow economists to be maintained in the splendid, splendid isolation in which they're found, in which mostly what they do is um, just manipulate mathematical theories. They don't even sometimes talk about money, you just do the math. They talk about markets and, and they never talk about, say, energy in relation to these markets. One point you make in the book is that it, the way they discuss markets is like uh, uh, it breaks the laws of thermodynamics. There's no mention yeah. of energy. Well, I, I mean, you know, a lot of economists are far from stupid about these things, but if you look at the stuff that's in their basic economics textbook where everybody starts, and as far as I can see, most of them don't get very far away, no matter how many courses in economics they take, they have a model of firms and households, and it's a perpetual motion machine. There's no inputs of energy, there's no outputs of heat or waste, there's no requirement for raw materials. It's something that cannot exist. And, of course, you'll hear an economist say, well, it's just an approximation, we want to start there, but you'd never do that in real science. Economics calls itself a social science, but science assumes you you do... You play the game of science, and the game of science requires that what you do is consistent with what are called first principles, such as the laws of thermodynamics, and that you play the game using the scientific method. And the scientific method is you come out with a hypothesis, and then you test this hypothesis, ideally, but not always. You have a test and control. And, you know, the economists say, well, it's too complicated. We can't do all of this testing and stuff, but... But in fact, you know, my, my master's students have been able to test this very, very easily, very straightforwardly. There's no secrets. Um, it's, it's not difficult. But you've got to play the game of science, and they should be embarrassed. It's taught that way, especially I'm, as a teacher. I'm especially worried about how it's taught. And in addition, there's all kinds of assumptions, such as humans are are self-directed, um, etc., that, that are clearly not true, that, that people like Gintis at Harvard have shown that people don't behave the way the neoclassical model says that they are supposed to. They break this, these, their basic assumptions all the time, and if the assumptions are broken, the whole model breaks down. So, Sure, you know, do I believe in supply and demand and, you know, certain things about economics? Sure, but... But even, but, even supply and demand, when you take a non-renewable resource, yeah. say like oil, um, you would think as there's less and less oil left, the price will go up and up. But short-term gluts can cause prices to momentarily fluctuate. So even when you take a non-renewable resource, we see like large non-rational behaviours in the market. <laughs> Well, there, I'm sure we can find some economists who will say, well, we'll show you how it's rational, because they can rationalize uh, lots of things that I don't think are rational. But uh, I don't know. Uh, sure, I agree with you. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to uh, peak oil theory. Yeah. And can you talk to me about... Uh, it's not a theory. It's an observation. Observation. And talk about the man who came up with it first, 
Hubbard? Uh, Hubbard and the history of it, particularly in the US and the other countries that have that have hit their peaks. Well, peak oil is the fact that it started in India. First of all, you got to realize that Hubbard was a hell of a geologist. And as he was once introduced, he wrote nine. In this era of published at Paris, he only wrote nine papers. Each of those papers was in a different discipline, and each of them is considered a classic. Hubbard was... Uh, he was a geologist for Shell, and he was a field geologist, and you know did that kind of stuff. And then he did a lot of. He's uh, a pretty good mathematician. He did a lot of reservoir theory. How where's the oil? How fast do you push it through? Oil, oil doesn't sit in the ground like in a can, like we're used to it. It's sort of more like an oil-soaked brick, and and you got to push that oil through the pores. It takes a lot of pressure. It takes a lot of pressure. That takes a lot of energy. That makes oil, I'm, I'm becoming more and more impressed that much of the energy that's used in the whole oil and gas industry is just pushing that oil through those pores. Uh, and we'll do it. We'll spend a lot of gas to push that oil, a little oil, through the, through the pores. And so, and it's tough to get out. Now, um, Hubbard said in 1955 at a meeting of the National Petroleum, whatever they are, meaning. Uh, he said, oil is a finite resource. Any finite resource will have a period of, once its uses are, once people figure out how to get it and figure out what to do with it, it'll have a period of exponential growth, very rapid increasing rate of growth. And then eventually, at some something like half of the total use of the resource, it will reach a peak and then it will go down. This is for a non-renewable resource. So you'll have a sort of bell-shaped curve um, and that he had simply observed this in different oil fields. Any oilman knows that a, any particular oil field will go through some kind of curve like this. And if you add a bunch of oil wells together, in what might be called, uh, well, a field or a play, then they all add up together and kind of smooth out smooth the curve. Out. And then if you put them together, uh, and he, he extrapolated that to say that, well, this should happen for a country. Later he said it would happen for the world, and he was famous by predicting in 1955 that the United States would peak in 1970. And, and he, people just made fun of him for doing that. They crucified him. But in 1970 came, and 1969 was the greatest production of oil the U.S. had ever had. And people thought uh, Hubbard was nuts. In 1970, uh, we reached our peak. In 71, we produced less oil. And we produced in the United States, we followed along a, a little bit higher than he suggested, um, and he said, I don't know about Alaska, and Alaska came on and make, made some difference. But basically, we followed the Hubbard curve a um, little bit higher than he predicted until the last three years. In the last three years, three or four years, we've actually had a bump up again. So we, so we have definitely had peak oil in the United States for something like, um, I don't know what the number is, but something like 60 of 80 oil-producing countries we've had. Already we've had a peak. We just haven't had a peak for the big ones, like Saudi Arabia. 
uh, Russia, which is a very big one. We're probably having a second peak with with uh, with Russia and uh, United Kingdom. The biggest oil field the world has discovered since the 1960s was the North Sea, and we've already had a peak 12 years ago or so for England and about 8 or 10 years ago for Norway. Can you talk about the impact of oil price on the economy that we saw in the 70s and again in 2008? Well, when, when the price of oil goes above 5 to 6%, you tend to get a, a recession. And that's happened time and time again. I think uh, something six of the last seven recessions have been preceded by uh, a jump in the price of oil. What's, what's the impact of this if, if we reach peak globally? What's the impact of that peak? What it, what it does, and, and we've, uh, we've written a paper that looked at this, I think, fairly well. And the peak is it gets rid of discretionary spending. Because if you double the price you pay from energy from 6 to 12 or 14 percent, then basically that 6 or so percent that you get rid of is discretionary spending. So in effect, this causes the economy to crash as there is less, less discretionary spending, less economic activity. Is more well, I'm not entirely comfortable with the word crash in general. But it causes the economy to be constricted, yes, yes, very much so. We found with the economic constraints that followed 2008, which many people thought were oil price related, the solar industries went bust. So you actually had a diminution of green, the so-called green technology. You've got to realize the most important green technology is firewood. And we use uh, far more firewood uh, for the world and for the U.S., the, all of the so-called new green technologies use no more than, produce no more than about a half of 1%. And most of these new solar technologies are very energy intensive to develop and do not have a particularly high payback, especially when you have to pay for the backups of some kind. So the wind only blows 30% of the time. So what do you do the other two-thirds? Well, do you, do you build that much infrastructure of fossil fuel to have a backup or do you make a pump storage project and so forth. I'm, I'm uh, writing a book with uh, Pedro Prieto who uh, knows uh, a lot. He's a solar engineer in Spain. He's been in charge of a lot of projects. So we're um, working our way through a new book where we try to measure all the energy that goes through to making the uh, solar power, you know, driving a truck 200 kilometers because you put your solar collector in the desert and it gets covered with dust and you got to drive a truck with heavy water back from the long way away to wash the solar collector so you don't lose your solar efficiency. And that's, uh, you know, and then a park bus and you got to fly in a the only guy in the world is some engineer from Finland with the part. And, and, you know, these are all costs where the fossil fuel economy is subsidizing the solar economy. Well, there's a lot of those things. And when we're all done, it's not clear how good solar is going to look. I mean, we all want to look. I make sure I want solar power. I want to run on green stuff.
you're you're famous for coming up with the concept of energy returned and energy invested. Well, the reason fossil fuels are economic is that is that they have high ROI, and we got a curve that shows that the you can predict if there's no subsidies, you can predict pretty well the price of a fuel based on its ROI. When you first discovered oil in America and you were taking it from these new virgin wells, mm-hmm. your energy return for every 1,000 barrels in some places you got out of the ground, it cost you one barrel to get it out. Mm-hmm. Your latest research and research of others have shown this deteriorating to 20 barrels. 12 well, for mining oil, which is what you're discussing, it's gone down to about 5 to 1. And for producing oil, it's probably peaked at around 30 to 1, was about that for a long time, and most recently it's about 10 to 1. A general trend down, and an ironic thing is that the harder you drill, the faster it declines. So the refrain we hear from oil companies of drill, baby, drill, it's not related, it's actually negatively related to the amount of oil you get. Well, that's true historically. Now, it's very clear over historical time there's been no relation except for about five years in the 1950s, there's been no relation, almost an inverse relation between the rate at which we drill and the rate at which we find and or produce oil. So like the amount of uh, wells you need to sink on a field has gone up a lot from, say, the supergiant fields of mm-hmm. the 50s and 60s. Oh yeah, no, we, we haven't found any important oil since, you know, 1960s, yeah. That was 68, Prudhoe, you yeah. know. We're, we're, we're developing, we're getting better at developing old oil, old low-grade oil fields, and we have to. And we're going further and deeper offshore, but that's very energy-intensive stuff. Can you describe the important Limits to Growth report? Well, uh, the Limits to Growth, uh, for your readers who don't know, was a study published in 1972. It was really the work of, the model was really designed by Jay Forrester. And the model predicted all kinds of catastrophic things for the human situation uh, as a consequence of uh, running out of resources, uh, overproduction of pollution, population growth, you know, the basic issues that have been argued about a lot. The model took a... originally was kind of... a lot of people took it very seriously because we had the 1973 oil shock and that seemed to be consistent with it and... Then we had the 79 oil shock, and that seemed to be consistent with it. But, boy, the economists hated this model. They hated the concept of limits to growth because they believe so strongly in technology, that in ingenuity, that human efforts would somehow be able to overcome any resource scarcity. And they certainly believe that Historically, that's what happened, that as you reached some kind of potential limit, that there would be a substitute, that uh, technologies would come to the rescue, people would use less, and so forth. Now, of course, from our perspective, we feel that, well, what happened was energy was becoming cheaper, and as energy, and as it became, something became scarcer, we just threw more energy to get more stuff out of the ground. In fact, as of right now, Predictions of the limits to growth model are is pretty much as much as we can tell for about all eight or ten things they predict. They're right on the money. They're within five or ten percent or less of 
exactly what they predicted back in 1972. And people don't understand this. And so uh, John Day and I published a paper in the American Scientists called Revisiting the Limits to Growth After Peak Oil. Uh, And there's another guy in Australia who came up with similar conclusions. His name's Graham Turner. Came up to similar conclusions all by himself. We don't know if all these violent oscillations are going to take place over the next couple of decades, but they might. So in that report, they do a number of scenarios. The majority of those scenarios that they do mm. uh, end up in, in somewhat of a catastrophic collapse in human yeah. population. The only way they could stabilize that model was to stabilize human population growth and stabilize uh, capital investment. You had to do both of those things, then you could generate a future that worked. Otherwise, things kept growing, and as things kept growing, uh, raw materials got used up, and and more pollutants were formed in the model. I'd like to talk about biophysical economics. It's the Mm -hmm. new branch of economics that you're uh, trying to set up. Could you give me an overview of, of its basis? What does economics mean, real economics mean to basic everybody and it's food on the table, roof over your head, transportation, trip to the movies or the art museum, whatever you can do. Now, all of these things are about stuff. All of them require energy, which is stuff. The economics as we teach it and do it is not about stuff. It's about markets. It's about human preferences. you got to have the stuff behind it. And that's why I think we need very much a biophysical economics to supplement, conceivably replace, the social science base, which is the only kind of economics that we teach and essentially do. So we are trying to develop uh, biophysical economics. Our, Our book, Energy and the Wealth of Nations, tries to do that. We'd like to get that taught in all our colleges, um, even in high schools, we have, uh, we have the means of giving the tools for high school teachers to teach uh, a course on biophysical economics. Yeah, I, I think that we have, it's not nearly as well developed as conventional economics, of course, but at least it's based on something that isn't an embarrassment. Based on the real world, it's, it's very straightforward and based on the real world. Yep. Neoclassical economics deals essentially with labor and capital and produces output as GDP. Mm-hmm. Can you talk through what, what are the inputs and outputs from a biophysical aspect? Well, let me give you a specific case where we examine this scientifically. So this is a guy named Dennison who said, what has been the cause of the, our increase in wealth? And wealth comes from production. Where did the increase in production come from? And he wrote three or four books on this. They all said the same thing, essentially, that if you look at the United States economy over time, it grew at a certain rate, and that if you look at the rate of the growth of capital and labor, they were much smaller capital than the growth of the economy. And he said, well, capital and labor together can explain only about half of what we've seen. And so the rest of it, the rest of that growth must be due to technology. Why did he choose technology? I mean, maybe the rest of it was due to planning salary. I don't know. It was a, just something out of the blue. And so when my colleague, Reiner Kummel, put energy into the same equations that Denison used, the residual 
that is the unexplained part went away and energy would explain the increase in the use of energy explain the increase in our production of wealth better than capital and labor together now why that hasn't revolutionized economics is beyond me why they keep talking only about capital and labor in their production functions, in their Cobb-Douglas production functions. It's just this astonishing titanic that's moving through the water that is so self-reflecting, has no idea that other people are looking at them. I'm talking about this whole enterprise of neoclassical economics. has no sense that real scientists, people who use the scientific method, look at what they're doing and find it a joke. That's, that's maybe a little bit too harsh, but, but not, maybe not. I mean, there's lots of really smart people out there, but they're toilet trained in economics, and that's the problem. Once apparently you're toilet trained in economics, you can't get out of the pit. So maybe we got to start over with training a whole new generation of economists. My, my students who have a little bit of economic training for me and go and take a conventional economics course, they'll come back and tell me they think it's a joke. Every one of them. Hundreds of them over the years. They say, how can they get away with this stuff? Tell him you won't tailgate. Hammer! I won't ever Do you know how many car lengths it takes to stop a car at 35 miles an hour? Six car lengths! That's 106 feet, mister! If I had to stop something, you would have hit me! I want you to get a driver's manual! I want you to study that And I want you to pay the goddamn rules! 50,000 people were killed on the highway last year because of like you! Tommy, you're gonna get a manual! Get a manual. It seems, it seems to me that economics is not truly a science for a good reason, that it, it's, it's, it's key to the power relations in a society. Well, uh, that's what Mancou students say. They, they are those that left his class. Well, you know, it's used, it's a tool of oppression used by Wall Street. And, and um, well, I wouldn't disagree with that. So can you talk to me about uh, the work you've done in Costa Rica? and putting together a biophysical analysis well, of the country. that's perhaps the most thorough analysis, biophysical analysis of any country, or biophysical economics analysis of any country. And, you know, like every place else, we found uh, at the time that the production of food and wealth and so forth in this country was completely dependent upon energy, most of which was imported oil, which cost them a lot to get it, and that 
was one of the reasons they could never break out of the debt cycle that they're in. And, and when you do the analysis, what were the, what were the main components of that analysis? Well, we looked a lot at, at agriculture because Costa Rica is usually considered an intensely agricultural uh, country. But just in the time period that I was looking at Costa Rica, they went from importing about 20% of their food to importing about 40% of their food. They don't have enough land to support the 3 to 4 million people that they have in this small, beautiful country without a tremendous use of fossil fuel uh, inputs. Interestingly, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, they've gone through their Arab revolution there last year and it's still going on, yeah. but they import 60% of their grain and 40% of their food. Yeah. And Egypt used to produce all of its own oil. It had, you know, it's a decent... Well, uh, talk about a peak oil country is Egypt is one. And, uh, you know, nobody talks... Nobody talks about what's really going on with the Arab Spring and all of this stuff. You've, you've got a lot of young people, sometimes highly educated, with nothing to do. There's no land uh, that's left for them to farm. The, their energies would be taken up with trying to farm and take care of their families and so forth and so on. In many of these countries, Pakistan, for example, the, the population growth rate is 5% a year. Well, some place that's growing at 5% a year is, is going to double its population in, what, 14 years. You can't do that in Pakistan. And they've gone through their natural gas. Um, now they have to import more and more of their stuff. They've been treated pretty poorly by weather. People think that everything's going on in, in Pakistan has to do with Taliban and the U.S. bad guys doing this or the Taliban bad guys doing that or something. Look. The, the young people there are frustrated because there's too damn many of them and they don't have anything to do and there's not a function for them in society and no way that they can go out in a decent way like their fathers and their grandfathers have a decent life working with their own muscles, um, growing their food, having self-respect. All of that has been destroyed by population growth and it's happening all over the Arab world and lots of the rest of the world too, and people only, nobody can analyze it except in terms of politics. Well, you know, it's time we toilet trained our news analysts to think about resources. And all of the economists who are in there going, whatever their thoughts are, um, and if they're not dealing with population growth, and they're not dealing with destruction of soil, and they're not doing with dealing with not enough water per capita, and they're not dealing with people that have polluted water, and they're not dealing with kids don't have a nice place in nature to grow up, then they're just missing what's going on. And I don't think they're ever, nobody's going to be able to rule Egypt because there's too damn many people and not enough resources. And most of the resources that are there are owned by a very few, relatively few people. Well, maybe you can fix it with some kind of distribution. You'll just buy another generation if you don't deal with the population issue. So the biggest problem we have in the world is nobody will talk about population. But let me tell you, I'll talk about population number one thing. Number one thing is population, and then you add population growth to the peak oil, which is seemingly happening for the world. We talked about it for countries. It's seemingly happening for the world. Maybe not exactly now. Maybe 
2004. We haven't quite figured it out yet. You put that together and you ask me, am I an optimist or a pessimist? Do you tell me how to be an optimist with a 5% a year population growth rate and you're exhausting your natural gas supply upon which your agriculture is dependent? How does that one work? And who is even thinking about it? One thing I would say as well is that if we couldn't control population growth on the way up, do we? Oh, nature will take care of it. No, you know, no problem. The population will, whatever population control needs to be done will happen. We just might not like it. I won't like it. I don't want people to suffer. So in, in normal economics, uh, standard economics, they talk about GDP all the time as a measure of how we're growing successful as an economy. Can you talk about how in biophysical economics you don't use just one estimate, you use different things, and what are they? First of all, we don't say you shouldn't use GDP. I mean, that's one imperfect index, and, and there's these all kinds of human development indices. And uh, in, in Costa Rica, you asked me about Costa Rica. In Costa Rica, we couldn't come up with any single... Uh, measure of what was going on. So what we did was um, we came up with, I think, about 30 of them, and we had a way of graphing them all at once. And I showed it once to Oscar Arias, who has a Nobel Peace Prize winner and had been president of Costa Rica, and, and I showed him how it worked, and he says, wow, he says, this forces the decision maker to see the consequences of his decisions. So, you know, there are ways we can use clever models to do these things. And so within that analysis, biophysical analysis, you can see the payoff, say, of growth in one place or more education here and what it does to the more complex system as a point to just, just a single number that, tr that tries to encapsulate everything. Yeah, no, I mean, to, to use, uh, some people will use a dollar value at bottom line. We hear that all the time, a dollar value bottom line or some people have an energy or you know, a different kind of energy analysis called energy analysis single number bottom line I mean all of these things are happening at once and I don't know how to weigh uh, increased pop, uh, crop production against uh, loss of soil but they're often one at the expense of the other okay how do you weigh it uh, we don't have a metric to do that I don't like to ask people predictions but I'd like to see are you an optimist or a pessimist didn't I just give you an answer? <laughs> yeah, in your book, you, you talk positively. You like to say that you're an optimist in the book. Well, I'd like to be an optimist. Well, what's an optimist? What would be an optimistic uh, result? So, I mean, the only thing worse than running out of oil is not running out of oil. Because uh, if we don't run out of oil, we'll destroy the world. Destroy the earth and all its species. That can't be a good thing. So are we lucky that the first limit we're going to hit, really, in this limits to growth is the peak oil? Is Are we fortunate that that could be the very first limit? I'm not a policy person. I, I don't like to deal with normative questions. I'm a scientist. I do my best to understand big or small, not good or bad. You say I'm an optimist in the book. I guess I better reread the book and figure out why that's the case. Uh, but let's assume that I mean, an optimistic future would be We'd get rid of all of neoclassical economics to replace it with people that are trained in the real world as it really works. We get rid of all of the religious nuts that don't let us talk about population control. And we um, start having meaningful discussions. I mean, as an American citizen, 
It's disgusting to watch our presidential debates. They're about stupid, stupid things. And all these huge resource issues are around us. And people don't even know how to talk about the questions. Oh. I'm not, and, and what we teach our, our young people go to college and they learn basically to become high-level consumers and not any sense of how do we build a more constrained lifestyle, how do we adjust to a probably more constrained lifestyle. Notice I say probably. I don't know what the future's going to be for sure, but it's pretty hard for me to think that if not pretty soon, then not many decades, we're going to have to deal with very, very serious issues of availability of our highest quality fuels and with the environmental consequences of basically burning everything in sight. So digging up and burning everything in sight. So these are really tough questions. And uh, I suppose for every person that we're training how to deal with these problems, we're training a hundred more people that are out there trying to grow the economy or a thousand more. So I don't see that working out very well either. I guess I'll have to say I'm a pessimist, despite whatever I say in the book. But I try. It, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. But given the way our world works politically, then if we continue to work that way, then it has to be. Is there anything else you would like to say to the audience? Is there anything we've left out in the discussion so far before we close? Well, I... You know, I'd like to say a couple of simple to young people. Uh, I'd like to say I grew up in a much lower energy intensity world, and it was I loved it. I could go anywhere in my hometown on my bicycle and and go fishing and hunting and digging up salamanders and whatever I was doing. I had a great time. Go swimming, and the water was clean. Um, so you don't have to be rich to have a good time. Get outdoors and run around and have a good time. And I'll say also to the young people that if you want the single thing, if you say, what can I do to protect myself? I'd say the single most important thing is to try to live near where you work. That's something we all can try to do, uh, and it will protect us. Another thing is you got to think about carefully uh, whether or how many children you want. And I'm not, I don't like to tell anybody what to do, but I suppose my ideas are probably fairly clear on that. Then try to learn some real economics, not, what, not the fairy tales they teach you in our economics classes. Okay, Professor Charles Hall, thanks very much for doing this interview today. It was a pleasure. Okay, Tom. <laughs> <coughs> This episode, you heard the team tune "Shine On, You Crazy Scumbag" by Clivestar. All kinds of everything by Dana. The Edinburgh Tattoo, the road rage scene from the film The Lost Highway, and this, the Happy Days team tune. I would like to thank Professor Hall again for a great interview. I spent a very entertaining day with Professor Hall, his brother-in-law Doug, and his old roommate and noted ecologist, Professor John Day. We ate roast lamb and Yorkshire pudding, 
strolled around the British National Gallery and got lost in the tube. I hope to have Charlie on the show again sometime in the future. I look forward to his next book. In the meantime, 